Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 24th of April, Dave Emmett taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions where Dave looked at the doctrine of Christology. Dave is currently a lecturer in theology at St Miletus College in Liverpool. Let's take a listen to the session. What a privilege it is uh, to be able to talk together about the person we love the most, the person we, <laughs> we give our lives to. And uh, just wonderful to talk about him. I put on your handout, just going on, on, on the handout, um, just some definitions at the top, which are there, you know, if you need to refer to them, but we will probably explain them as we go along. So starting off on section one, we're talking about Jesus and, um, you know, a recurring emphasis in both the Old Testament and, and New is on his pre-existence. And when we talk about that, we mean that Jesus existed eternally as part of the Godhead before his birth in Bethlehem. And so this hopefully um, will, will come across to you as we start looking at him. Uh, but before we, we, we look at his incarnation, his, uh, we're going to look at some pre-incarnation appearances, um, which we call theophanies. Um, the Bible teaches God is um, spirit. John 4, 24, and, you know, Colossians 1, verse 15, talks about the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1, 17 says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. And so God is spirit. This God who we now describe in Trinitarian terms as Father, Son, and Spirit, this God is, is spirit, invisible. And because we're human and we've got limitations, it makes it almost impossible to imagine the invisible. So God, to help us in revealing himself to us, describes his actions in terms of the human body. So it'll talk about his eyes behold us. To the Israelites, he talked about his outstretched arm that rescues them from, from Egypt to save them and so on. Now, when we use things like this, expressions like that, there's a big, big word that we use, um, anthropomorphism, um, which is a concession to, to, to our human weakness. God doesn't have any physical parts at all. Just that word anthropomorphism, it's from the Greek anthropos, meaning man, and morph, meaning form. And so an anthropomorphism describes the invisible God in terms of the human form. Um, and God helps us in other ways, well, not in human terms, but talks about, you know, abiding about uh, under his wings and things like this. Ways that we can picture and begin to understand something of um, how he is and who he is. Um, scripture, having said all that, scripture does record instances in the Old Testament where God appeared visibly, often in a human form. And such an appearance is called a theophany, literally an appearance of God. A theophany is God making himself visible in his manifestation to human beings. So, um, for example, uh, we say visible, but, but Adam, in Genesis 3, verse 8, heard God walking. 
Um, Abraham, a famous one, Abraham encountered God in the form of a smoking brazier with a blazing torch at the time of, you know, when the covenant was established between them in Genesis 15. And then God appeared again to Abraham as a messenger. Well, there's three persons, some people would say, and certainly Andrei Rublev is a very famous icon uh, from the Russian, uh, you know, the hospitality of Abraham worth having a look at and the explanation of it, a really uh, good icon to look at. And he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3, 4, appeared to the children of Israel in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, Exodus 13. Um, remember that's quite sort of enigmatic encounter that Joshua had uh, with the commander of the army of the Lord and it, it, it's, uh, you know, it's God appearing to him. So such theophanies though seem to end when the temple in Jerusalem uh, was built apart from you know, the, the, the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the, in the fiery furnace. And then there was the fourth man who appeared. And that's the one exception. Um, but, you know, the experiences of Isaiah and Ezekiel, when they saw the Lord, it was visions rather than theophanies. And there's a difference between a vision and what sort of happens in your walking along on, on, on everyday life. So alongside the prophetic ministry established by David, um, the temple became the vehicle that God used to bring his self-revelation to Israel. Temple ministry alongside prophetic ministry was the Old Testament norm for God to reveal himself once the temple was built. Uh, it's how you know God. It was how you knew God via the temple, via the prophetic ministry, until, until the time came for Jesus to make himself visible in Jesus of Nazareth, when he said of himself in Matthew 12, verse 6, I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. So um, most, looking at 1.2, the angel of the Lord, most evangelical scholars believe that the theophanies were in fact appearances of Christ before his birth in Bethlehem. Um, and so they refer to them as Christophanies, um, appearances of Christ. And if you look at the New Testament, it certainly speaks of Christ as being present with the nation of Israel during their trek through the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ, says Paul in 1 Corinthians. So the Theophanies are chiefly associated in the Old Testament with the expression, the angel of the Lord. And at first reading, this often seems to refer to nothing more than an angel from the general uh, angelic company. So Judges 6 verse 11, you know, the angel of the Lord came and sat it's down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash, uh, where Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. But if you carry on, it shows a description often transcends the normal attributes of angels to the point where the angel is identified with the Lord himself. So Genesis 16, 7 to 13, the angel of the Lord sees Hagar, remember when she was out in the wilderness, and Hagar says she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, talking about the angel of the Lord from earlier on in the chapter, says, you are the God who sees me, gives it to the name to the Lord who spoke to her. And it said it was the angel of the Lord who spoke. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Uh, and says he is God in ex and quite plainly says he is God. 
Um, the angel mentioned in Exodus 23 is said to have God's name in him who will go before them. Um, God promised he would send an angel before the people to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan in Exodus 33. Later, he said, my presence will go with you. So um, at the beginning of Israel's conquest, the promised land, you know, mysterious visitor calling himself the commander of the army of the Lord appears to be uh, appears to Joshua and receives from him. This angel receives worship, um, which no mere angel is permitted to receive. We know that from Revelation 19, verse 10. Um, so this figure, the angel of the Lord, associating it with the pre-incarnate Christ become, is easy to grasp when we realize the basic meaning of angel is messenger uh, and, and, and can refer to people as well as to angels proper. So God promised to Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, see, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. Again, remember, this is the word for angel, messenger, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So my messenger was John the Baptist, and he'd prefer prepare the way for another greater messenger, the messenger of the covenant. So there's a link. It's always saying there's a link between this, this phrase, the messenger of the covenant, describing Jesus, and the messenger, the angel of the Lord that appeared. Um, going on to the incarnation of Christ, number two. And, and, and any thoughts, comments on that before we just shoot on to number two? Go on, Andy. Andy Guy. Yeah, uh, it just struck me that apart from the Moses one, is it, is it the use of the definite article that, that marks the, the angel of the Lord out from other angels? Because it just, just doesn't say an angel, it says the angel. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the way the translators have put it to try and um, help that. Yes, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, I, th I think the um, it's interesting as well. You've got um, Melchizedek, who is different. I think you mustn't read too much into stuff. Melchizedek, in my view, and I know some people say that was a um, Christ appearing to him because he, he gave him tithes and all this stuff. Abram. But Melchizedek was, you know, more almost certainly a person, uh, a real person um, one to watch there. Um, okay, so we go on to the, let, let's sort of keep this moving and go on to the incarnation of Christ. Um, all those Christophanies, um, you know, took place against the backdrop of a long, if you go through the Old Testament, you're in for it, there's this long and steady buildup of the expectation of a coming Messiah. And uh, all that God had spoken concerning Christ to the patriarchs, the prophets, and the people of Israel finds its long-awaited fulfillment in the incarnation of the Son of God. And um, both the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow had been mapped out in the Old Testament, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Um, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with greatest care, trying to find the time and circumstances which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah in the Old Testament and the glories that would follow in the Old Testament. And it was revealed to them, they weren't serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by these things that are preached to you by the Holy Spirit from, sent from heaven. And so the patriarchs, what's he saying? The patriarchs, the prophets understood that all the spirit had shown them about Christ was for a time to come. There's a coming Messiah. 
and they looked intently um, into these issues. They realized they weren't serving themselves, but a future generation who would actually see, uh, you know, generations longing to see his coming. Uh, and this was revealed to them that this is what it was all about by the spirit of Christ in them. Um, however, not everybody looked forward to, to this long prophesied event. Herod, um, you know, was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him when wise men came and, uh, you know, uh, and asked him where the Christ was to be born. And true to the prophetic word, because they, they told him it was prophesied um, from Micah 5 verse 2, um, he'd be born in Bethlehem in Judea. True to the prophetic word, exactly as it said, Jesus was born to Mary in Bethlehem. But before we look at that, let's ask why the incarnation was necessary. Was it really necessary? Come on, God's sovereign. Couldn't he work out some way of saving us and remaining transcendent, um, being above us and beyond us and, and working out his, you know, his purpose without the need to appear in a body? You don't ever ask yourselves that question. You know, I ask it sometimes about why God even today wants his kingdom to come through a church, through a people like us. Can't you do it yourself, God? Uh, why couldn't God, if he wanted to save us, have saved us without having to go through all this hassle of taking on um, human form? Um, well, evidently not. It was necessary. The very fact that he's sovereign and that the incarnation did take place shows us, should show us, that it was necessary. Um, more particularly, it was necessary because only one who was both God and man human if i'm using the word for man human could achieve our salvation if god and mankind were to be reconciled jesus had to partake of the nature of both in order to bring them both together um, so that's why 1 timothy 2 verse 5 says there is one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus colossians 1 21 22 once paul writes to them from prison <laughs> you were alienated from god and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior but now he has reconciled you by christ's physical body through his physical body do you underline that bit his physical body through death to present you holy to sight without blemish free from accusation the sinful condition of fallen humanity uh was a result of the fall of adam the representative man so another Adam, another representative man, was required to deal with sin and lift humanity back to the throne from which it had fallen. Um, see, Paul in, in, in Romans 5, you can read it, Romans 5, 12 to 19, it is, he contrasts the one man, Adam, with the one man, Jesus Christ. Um, so, uh, you know, only by sharing our humanity could christ become uh as it says in hebrews 4 15 a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses it would not do um uh, to have god uh who didn't take on humanity a god who didn't take on humanity could not reconcile us to himself this is the amazing thing about the incarnation it was a necessity i say that God could have decided in his sovereignty, I'm not going to bother saving them. 
I'm going to do what I did to angels who rebelled and throw them into gloomy dungeons of, you know, darkness or whatever it says in, in Peter. But, but God, once he decided in his sovereignty, you know what? I love them and I'm going to save them. Once that decision was made, the consequence of that decision was that the incarnation became necessary, that, that God had to take on human flesh to reconcile him to himself. If he'd never have loved us, if he'd never have wanted to save us, it wouldn't have been necessary. Once he decided in his sovereignty, I'm going to save them. It was a necessity, Christ coming and taking on human flesh. You see, um, only by sharing our humanity could Christ become a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. If it had been God and transcendent, different and above us, he'd have never have understood what you and I go through when we're tempted, uh, our weaknesses, feeling tired, hungry, etc. He wouldn't have never, he'd never have known that because he's God. But once he decided he had to come and do it so that he could be the high priest and, um, and he could show us example how to live in the world and would be confessed soteriologically when we talk about salvation um it's important as well we realize you know adam the first adam was our federal head um you know our representative uh, you know when we went to war with iraq if you like tony blair was our federal head and he did things when we went when britain went to war with iraq i went to war with iraq i had no choice in the matter Tony Blair made the decision because he was my federal head, if you like. Well, it's a bit like that. When, when Adam sinned, we all became sinners and we had no choice in the matter. But what happens is it needed a second Adam, a last Adam to come uh, and to do something so that we could have a, a choice, an option as to whether we were in the first Adam or in the last Adam, as we'll see perhaps if we go on. But the virgin birth, let's just look at that. Is This is, I'm hoping, that what I'm trying to get across here is when we talk about Christ, the virgin birth really, really matters. Um, the New Testament teaches Jesus was born of a virgin. If you've not got faith, um, that's a real problem because, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you will never accept without faith, you'll never accept the truth of Gabriel's statement to Mary, Luke 1.37, nothing is impossible with God. You'll always say it's not possible. Uh, but the Christian has to accept uh, the Bible's affirmation, you know, that Luke Matthew 1.18, this is how the birth of Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And um, this was, this was, you know, so Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Um, this was, this was, this was a, you know, to Jesus, this is something he suffered for uh, on earth because his contemporaries were just unsympathetic uh, and believed him to be born illegitimately, fathered by Joseph before he and Mary, Mary were married. Um, so in Matthew 13, they refer to him as the carpenter's son, or Luke 4, 22, Joseph's son. And when some Jews in conversation with Jesus said, we are not illegitimate children, the we is emphatic, you know, we're not like you. Um, they implied Jesus was illegitimate. Um, but the statements of Matthew and Luke settle the issue for us. Christ was born not as a result of intercourse, but by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, his mother Mary, and it's important we, we accept this, she was a virgin in the strict medical sense. And um, so 
when we come on, you know, Isaiah 7, prophetic word comes, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, King Gehaz, uh, you know, Isaiah, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel in, in, in the New Testament spelling, Emmanuel in the Old Testament spelling. Um, and uh, and means God with us. So the promise had um, this immediate fulfillment in the lifetime of Ahaz, when a recently married young woman bore a child who was not a virgin birth, but she, 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 she was a young girl who gave birth to a child. Uh, it was given the name that Ahaz did not live by, God with us. But the promise was messianic, finding its ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. So Mary had responded when angel Gabriel told her this, how will it be? And the angel answered in Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And so in due course, Mary gave birth and the incarnation became a reality. The long-awaited Messiah, this gradual buildup, you know, it all came about. Christ, the Messiah, entered the human scene. John describes it, 114, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Time for a carol. You know, Charles Wesley, heart the herald angels sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, great carol, favorite carol of many of you, I'm sure. So conception was by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't, and this is important, God was involved in God being born, taking on human flesh. It wasn't just, how can I put it, just a normal, do you get what I mean when I say just a normal physical miracle? It was more than that. It was God, the Holy Spirit, clearly involved. This was important because Jesus could now fulfill his role as the last Adam, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. If it had been born of Joseph, he would have still had original Adam and would have part, been part of original sin. It's 1115. Um, that, that thing that we're all, you know, sin is in all of us. Um, so he, you know, the divine germ, Tertullian uh, commented once, had to be su substituted for the human seed. It's, it's, Christ, it's God um, in there, born of God. And so, so the, direct, the first Adam, he'd been the federal head of the human race. We said that he'd been a direct creation of God. And in that respect, Luke 3.38, he was, he was the son of God. He was the son of God. But Jesus, as the federal head of a new race, was also the son of God. And his birth had to be marked by the direct intervention of God. And that occurred with the overshadowing of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Um, so without human intercourse, Mary conceived the Christ child. The Spirit kept the Virgin Mary from transmitting any taint of original sin. So Christ remained absolutely free from all trace of original sin. Yes, Mary was the mother, but there was something protected there from the Christ in that the, there wasn't the blood of the, you know, of the Father coming into his veins. Um, and so the reasons for the virgin birth, um, you know, God emphasized the following truths. Um, the unique nature of Jesus' birth declared the uniqueness of Jesus. 
Um, special people had experienced special births before, um, you know, but, but Christ's birth alone was of a virgin, proclaiming the uniqueness of Mary's child as the Holy One, the Son of God. And the virgin birth distinguished Jesus as the last Adam, the final representative man. And the fact that the original Adam was born not by normal means uh, set him apart. Jesus, too, was set apart by a unique entry into the human scene. And it demonstrates as well the centrality of the incarnation in God's purposes. Um, God had previously spoken, the writer to the Hebrews says, through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son in his son that's the language that god has used to speak to us um, the radical nature of his son's conception of birth was a sign that in him god was doing something radically new in the history of the world um, if jesus had been born as a result of being you know just the natural child of joseph and mary it's hard to see how god could have become that man either he would have had to attach himself to him in some way as an extra um or merely fill him in the way the Holy Spirit filled godly men. Neither scenario fits the biblical picture, but in fact, in order that the second person of the Trinity might become man, the Holy Spirit fashioned the necessary genes and chromosomes that could be the vehicle of Christ's person in uniting with those in the body of uh, the Virgin. So the Virgin birth is important Christologically in, in, in looking at that. It provides an insight into the sovereign grace of God in the new birth. God set Joseph aside, so to speak, causing Jesus to be born without any need for, uh, you know, the procreative role of Joseph. Instead, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, bringing about the conception supernaturally. In the same way, in the same way, just let's pause a minute, um, in the same way, think about it. We are born again, not of natural descent, John 1 verse 13, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John 3 verse 8, we're born of the Spirit. Um, just pause, I know we're talking about Christ, but think about yourself for a second. In a similar way, um, you know, we have been born of the Spirit, and our new life is not to do with our parents, not to do with past history, it's the fact that we're born of God. And any, any, Thoughts, questions, reactions to, to the virgin birth? That's, that's all just completely mind-blowing. Sorry, I need to turn my camera on to be polite. That's just all so huge. I feel like it's a new, brought a real freshness to how I've seen the virgin birth before. So thank you. It's massive. It's a bit mind-blowing, I think. Um, no, so. Talking about Jesus, that is often the result, isn't it? <laughs> I also love the analogy that you used about um, Tony Blair about us going to war with Iraq. You know, on on his on his terms, if you like. And this this is how um, I mean, trying to explain original sin to, to people, um, Adam's sin separating us from God. That's a real that's a real tough one, but that's something that people can relate to and, and actually visualize, isn't it? Now, so thank you for that. Thanks. Daniel, you, were, you unmuted yourself and you muted yourself again. I saw that unmute. I'm a bit of an evangelist, actually, when it comes to people unmuting themselves. So. Awesome. Um, yeah, it was really helpful. Um, you said, I think, I'm not sure. Did you say that there were other virgin births? No, said the opposite. Said oh. the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Cool, cool, cool. 
<laughs> Glad we got that one cleared up. <laughs> yeah, the bit I struggled with was the Tony Blair bit. I mean, my view is that it's the concept of you know a piece, some yeast affecting the whole batch. Is that um, you know even Adam fell for the story and therefore sin entered mankind and infected the whole batch. You know, if, whether you agreed or not with Tony Blair, you had to go along with it. Um, but I think when you're born, you're unaware and you're just a natural sinner because the whole batch is infected. Yeah. And you know, it requires conviction for you to make a decision to step away from that. So uh, that's the one thing that I view different with the rest of it was, was uh, I don't think we'd be here if we couldn't handle a virgin birth. Yeah. Hey, Keith, I totally agree with you. I'm not quite sure, because um, that's what you just said is um, is what I think the Tony Blair thing. I mean, another analogy is um, if I've got a sort of, uh, you know, a big barrel of water uh, from a fresh mountain stream and said, who'd like a drink? You'd all come and take a drink from it, wouldn't you? Because you're thirsty, you're dying of thirst. Dip your cup in this beautiful water and, and drink as freely as you want. If, however, I put just one tiny drop of cyanide into that barrel of water, none of you would come and have a drink from it, quite rightly so, because everything would have been affected by the one drop of cyanide. And I think that's another little analogy. All these analogies break down in some way or whatever, but, but that's another analogy just for original sin. It affects everything. Um, okay, so let's, sorry, if, if nobody else just move on. 2.2, and I think this is a really sort of like um, big meaty part of what we want to look at this morning is Christ's divine and human natures. Um, so what are we saying? We're saying pre-existence, God, all the glory of you know, God and everything. The, the eternal word, the logos, is a word that's used in, in John 1, 1, takes on humanity. The word became flesh. That passage in Philippians, the famous passage, you know, have the same attitude as Christ, who, you know, having you know godliness put it to one side outside emptied himself and became nothing um so how the messiah is both god and man at the same time scripture doesn't set out in some formulaic way um the teaching on the bible on both aspects of his person you know his manhood and his divinity simply forces us to the conclusion that the infinite and the finite, the eternal and the temporal, the changeless and the changeable, growing, aging, all come together in one person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So John puts it, as we said, the word became flesh. So it's really important we understand that the Logos didn't see a, a good human being and superimpose himself on an existing human being. Rather, the logos, the word, became flesh, taking on a human nature that didn't exist independently of him. So the logos was the person of the Son of God with both, both divine and human natures. So this causes us to really stretch our brain cells a bit here. Because we must remember that nature is one thing and person another. So there are two natures combined in Jesus, but he's not schizophrenic, all right? He is not two persons, 
but one person. He was one person with two natures. Nowhere do we find him making a distinction between a divine personality and a human personality. He never, for instance, employs the language of Genesis where God refers to himself in the plural. And what we, you know, let us make God in that. He, he, he never does that. Um, he, you know, th that's why most of the historic creeds and confessions of the church have understood Christ as having two distinct natures combined in one person. Now, um, yeah, any, any comments on that, thoughts on that before we carry on? Well, let, let's carry on, let's carry on, because it's probably gonna help if we do. Um, so when the Bible teaches on Christ's human and divine natures, it's, it's all a bit of an enigma, as we'd expect. You're talking about divine mystery um, of the incarnation. So we're living in the year 2021. Um, through the centuries of the church's existence, there's been a variety of attempts to define the person of Christ in respect to his divine and human natures. So debates took place during the first, you know, three, four hundred years of the Christian era, uh, and several councils of church leaders called together. It's hard for us to imagine, you know, um, living today, but you put yourself, things weren't as clear in, you know, the first, second, third, until the fourth century, things began to get clearer. So, um, and several councils, especially between AD 325 and AD 451, uh, there was all sorts of debates going on. And, 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 and the schools of thought, fall into some broad categories, which I've put in the notes for you there. Um, there were some who denied Christ's deity, like the Ebionites. That was a Jewish Christian sect of the early Christian era. Um, they held that Jesus was the natural son of Joseph and Mary, and that his divinity meant no more that the Holy Spirit descended on him, making him the son of God in a less than biblical sense. So it fails to bridge the gap between God and man leaving us without a saviour. The Apollinarians took a similar view, holding that the Logos took the place of the human soul. So God the Son, they maintained, God the Son entered a human body so that Christ didn't possess a full human nature. The Monarchians uh, stressed God's unity, that they saw Jesus not as a God-made man, but only as a creature whom God adopted as his son. So some denied his deity in that sense. Some denied his humanity. Some saw him as only divine. Um, so left with the problem of how to explain his, you know, his humanness, they concluded that he only seemed to be human. Docetists from, uh, you know, the Greek dokeo to seem, maintain that. They said his body was just an illusion and merely a vehicle for his divinity. He didn't have a real body. Um, so they denied because he couldn't really die on the cross. They, they denied the resurrection and the ascension because they said he never died. The Gnostics were another heretical group with a similar approach of their view of Christ's divinity, you know, again, fell short of the biblical revelation. It was that putting of the spiritual is godly, the flesh is all sinful. Um, the Sabellians, um, insisted uh, and, and uh, you know that God is one nature and one person 
but has got three names and reveals himself in three different forms or modes. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is, uh, so they, 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 these three weren't separated or separable persons. God could be Father one day, Spirit another, Son another. So Christ was just an expression of who God is. He wasn't God himself. Um, so modalism is, is the alternative form for that, just God appearing in whichever mode uh, you set him to appear in, or whichever mode he sets himself to appear in. I think that would be fair to, for, to say. Um, another, uh, these are all heresies, obviously. Another one was sort of making Christ a creature, but a creature of the highest order. And some thought, uh, give Christ a high place. Um, they gave him a high place, but wouldn't accept he was truly God. On that basis, he must be a created being, but he was of a higher order than normal person. In their view, a spiritual being created by God before the creation of the world and given the title, the son of God. Um, so effectively, they, they placed him in this sort of third category, semi-divine to declare him not to be of the same substance as the father but similar similar substance to the father so this is the Aryan position uh, which really went after it in terms of um struggling for, you know for supremacy throughout the fourth century it was quite a, a big one it robs Jesus so obviously of his deity his glory and his power to save because it's saying he's semi-divine um and then the Eutychians um wanted to preserve the unity of Christ's person. They held that whereas before the incarnation there were two natures, there was only one sort of composite nature after it. That meant that Christ was neither truly God nor truly man, but a third kind of being. Um, obviously, that didn't work either in terms of him being a mediator, since he doesn't partake of the nature of either of the parties needing reconciliation. Is this, you've, you've blended the two together and you haven't got, uh, you know, he can't represent man to God or God to man because he's, 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 he's just a, a blend. Um, so the Nestorians, and we've, we've touched on what some of them did earlier on, the Nestorians, uh, they created two Christs. They wanted to maintain the full manhood of Christ and make a, a sharp distinction between his divine and human natures. So they took it to such an extreme as to throw into question his personal unity um, and, and really saw two Christs there. Um, so all of these heresies really is what they are um, and controversies provoked and challenged a church to become clear on the doctrine of Christ in relationship to his true uh, humanity, his manhood, his true divinity and his work of redemption. So as these various church councils met they, they, they battled this out and they tended to formulate their doctrine of Christ by clarifying uh, in response to the heresies what Jesus was not. We're going to make it clear by saying what Jesus is not. And so it came to a head, uh, the Council of Chalcedon in, in, in 451 AD, they met to bring the to bring resolve to debates once for all. And, and, and um, this council examined all the biblical evidence, uh, bishops and whatever, all there, relevant to the incarnation, the person of Christ and the issue of his human and divine natures. And they formulated a statement that took into account uh, what all of this in, into account. And so this is the statement. Um, so thinking about what we've just looked at, let's just read it 
together. I think you've got it in your notes, have you? Is that right? I haven't got the handout there. Is it in the notes, the statement? I'll put it in full. So here we go. Our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhood, and at this Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father um, before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten in the last days for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures, plural, being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same and only begotten God, the word Lord Jesus Christ. Um, hey, um, if your mind wasn't a bit blown before, it probably is now and uh, might be overheating. <laughs> um, any reactions, comments, thoughts before we carry on? Are you, probably not because you, uh, it, this is, um, when we look, talk, talk, talk about crystal. so what are we saying? It's really important, I think, even looking at those um, heresies because we can fall into them if not, okay. it matters A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing about you is the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God. And um, let me say, you know, Jesus is God. And what you think about him really matters to your faith and working out of it. So this is, you've really got to worship the Lord with your mind here. Uh, and uh, you can't just sit back and think, well, uh, I love the Lord. It doesn't really matter who he is. No, we must know who he is and, uh, and understanding you know, who he, it helps us in this. Um, anyone be honest, just put your hand up if you're struggling a bit to, to really grasp and comprehend this. Oh. I actually had a question. Somebody's got a question, somebody else put yeah. hand up. Go on. Oh. So, so it says, you said the uh, Council of Chalcedon brought resolve to the debates. Why did this statement brought, bring resolve? I mean, all these heresies are debunked in the in the Bible anyway, right? Um, yeah, I, th I think it's sort of coming back to what I was saying before. Well, very good question. And I think um, what you've got to understand is this wasn't like um, something that popped up in the news and um, we better resolve this quickly now. It was something that had been going on for the discussion and the debate. There wasn't clarity in the church, in the early church. There wasn't clarity on this. And that's why the heresies um, popped up, what we now call heresies. People were genuinely trying to understand this because the Bible, the word Trinity, for example, isn't in the Bible. The Bible doesn't um, go around saying, oh, by the way, the Bible isn't like um, a handbook, a theological handbook. It had to be grappled with and worked out. And we do it. And the early church, the early church did it. They had to work out the doctrine. Um, and so you'd got these different, streams of thought coming in which by the spirit i believe god used church leaders and people coming together to actually thrash out something that was more 
truthful in, 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 in regard to and in line with what uh, biblical understanding would be. But it, there was a task. There's a theolo There's always a theological task to, to do. And, um, I, you know, the, the, there wasn't just one super apostle that they went to and got all the answers from. They had to sit down together and work this out. Um, and I think we still have that task. There is a theological task for us to do today. There's all sorts of issues which we won't want to get into now, but things we have to sit down and think at. What does this mean for us today? But obviously this was a major, major one, the person of Christ, who he is. Um, so two natures, one person. <laughs> that's, uh, I suppose, in summary, that's what we're saying here. Um, as I said at the beginning, I, I used to work in Congo. And um, see, the, 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 there's a phrase, I don't know if I put it in the notes or not, the hypostatic union um, is, is the, the term of this, of two natures in one person is, is the theological term. Um, the way explained it in Congo um, was a story from, from, from there, um, which I worked in a very sort of rural part of Congo where there weren't flushing toilets or anything like that. You dug a latrine, you dug a hole in the ground and put a little roof over it and that would be your toilet. Um, and in Congo as well, they had, um, there were like tribal people group chiefs who would, uh, various levels, who would be dressed in special clothes and, um, uh, you know, different levels. But one day um, there was a, a young boy, um, uh, even just recently when I was in Congo, people would fall, sometimes fall down these latrines because they weren't, if they weren't made well or, or um, uh, you know, the, the wood that sort of built the hole over rotted away, people would fall, people had fallen in and died in these latrines, very sad. Um, but one boy, this boy um, fell down a latrine into the muck and mire of the, 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 the toilet, you know, and, and fell down it. Um, and the question was, who would go down? Because he'd injured his leg in the fall. Who would go down and rescue him from the latrine? He's mucky, he's dirty, he's filthy, he's stuck at the bottom of this pooey, uh, messy, urine-filled hole. Who'll go down and get him? People were all looking a bit reluctant. Anyway, the local um, people group chief comes along in his fine rows, in all, you know, people walking along in the way they did it where I was, um, as I said, a very rural area, very traditional in some of the ways, you know, someone chasing away the evil spirits, whatever, before he came and everything like that. Um, but he came along in all his robes, the, the guy who everybody showed the utmost respect to. What did he do? He took off all his robes that marked him out as the tribal chief, took them off. There were little steps that they made when they dug the hole originally, climbed down into the muck and the mire, put the boy on his shoulder and climbed back up and saved that boy from just rotting away in the bottom of a latrine. Now, the question to put to people about this is the chief, in all his regal splendor, with all his royal robes on, was he the chief? Yeah, he was the chief, wasn't he? When he descended into that latrine, was he the chief? Yes, he was still the chief. But had he taken on another nature, yeah, he'd become someone different. His nature wasn't that. 
he'd taken on the nature of somebody who was descending into the muck and the mire, but he was the same person. All his royal robes were off him. He was actually putting his feet in other people's poo, for goodness sake, to rescue this young lad and rescuing him he did. But he was the same person, but he'd taken on another nature. In the same way, Christ, one person in sharing his father's glory, Philippians 2, laid all and emptied himself made himself nothing, uh, took on, you know, human humanity uh, in order to rescue us. Maybe that helps us understand just that story, helps us understand something of what the hypostatic union is all about. Um, two natures, one person. All right. Okay. Um, so, once after the, the, the Council of Chalcedon, once that was sorted out, um, you know, it remains, that has remained the, the Orthodox uh, Christian Church classic summary on the person of Christ. Um, okay, we move on to number point three, um, his life. Um, Jesus was a real person and lived in his humanity. Um, you know, uh, on earth for 33 years before his crucifixion. Um, John 1.14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling amongst us. Uh, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Um, Colossians 2.16.17, don't let anyone judge you what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Uh, John 1 John 1, that which we've from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Statements like these just emphasize the real humanity of Jesus and at the same time his godhood. He was a real man. He grew up from infancy through his childhood and into manhood. He took Joseph's trade. We know he became a carpenter. He experienced the trials and temptations common to humanity. He knew what it was to be tired, hungry, thirsty. He was limited in his human knowledge. He didn't know every language there was to know. Um, you know, he, he didn't know sometimes what the matter was in certain parts or places. He longed for human sympathy and support at times. He was very real like us in terms of his humanity. So it's, this is, this, there's so much importance we need to attach to the life of Christ because um, without a sinless life on, on, on his part, there could have been no salvation for us. He lived in the same humanity with this, that, that we live in, but he was without sin. He was tempted, Hebrews 4.15, tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin. What does that mean? It means that his sacrifice could be the perfect sacrifice, just as all the Old Testament sacrifices, without blemish, without defect. He could be the sacrifice. Um, there's very few details about Jesus's life recorded in the Gospels. Um, you know, after recounting his birth, uh, you know, we know in Luke 2.40, he grew strong and was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Then it jumps to his visit to the temple at the age of 12. He grew in wisdom and stature of favor of God of all men, Luke 2.52. And then there's an even bigger jump, 18 years 
uh, until his baptism at Jordan and the beginning of his three years of public ministry, you know, and he was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Now, it's important for us to understand if it had been some blemish on his character during those years in which he worked as a carpenter in Nazareth, uh, local people would have been quick to make it known um, when he embarked on his public ministry. Yet he could claim John 8, 46 and John 14, 30 to be without sin. His purity uh, was just so important. Um, and, and, you know, we go on to because it, 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 it's it's sinlessness. Um, you know, he, he, he was sinless. What he did, he was just going on to 3.2, you know, God made him who had no sin because it was so important that he was without sin. Hebrews 4.15, um, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. Hebrews 7.26, and unblemished. Uh, it was a sacrifice offered himself. Um, and Paul, Peter and John make comments about him being without sin. Um, let's just look at activity three and um, just... Uh, just want us to let, let's have a think about this. Um, we won't go into breakout rooms because we, we we're not going to. Well, perhaps we no, there isn't time. Let, let's let's just talk together if we can. So um, do uh, let, let's have a look. The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Can anyone um, anyone think of that? What happened on the Day of Atonement? Um, Leviticus 16, um, when the priest went in just once a year. Anyone? All the, sin was, all the sin was put on the um, the goat, wasn't it? That's right. Well done, Rachel. Yeah, sin was put on the goat. And before that happened, um, can anyone, that was sort of like the climax of the Day of Atonement when the priest would, the high priest would lay his hands over. How, how many goats were there actually on the Day of Atonement? Annie's going to answer, I think, or somebody. Go on, hear a voice. There were two goats, that's right. One was the, the scapegoat, and one was the sin was put on it, and then it was sort of went away into the into the wilderness and was seen to carry the, the sins of the people away. And the other one, its blood was shed. It had its throat slit and, and, and blood was shed. And before that, there was a, a bull was slain and a ram, you know, the ram. And, and so you had this sort of sacrifice upon sacrifice to make it all clean. And then the priest came in and offered the sacrifice on behalf of the people. And it was repeated. How often was it repeated? Every year. But when it comes to Christ, he offered... He was different. He was a high priest. Um, Hebrews just goes through this in the middle chapters very much. Christ offered himself. He brought the offering of himself, a perfect sacrifice. And the phrase that's used in Hebrews is once for all, a very strong phrase that's only used in Hebrews, a definite, that's it, it's done. And uh, this was a better covenant because his sacrifice, Hebrews 8 verse 2 says, we're on 3.3 now, um, he made it in the true tabernacle, not in the tabernacle on earth, but in the true tabernacle that is in heaven and offered himself, not a, a bull or a goat, and established the new covenant through that. And so, you know, his death going on to 4.1, I'm shooting away here, 4.1, his death was a substitutionary death. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, and so, um, you know, you, you've, you've got this, what we're describing there is called the penal uh, substitution uh, view of the atonement. There's other views of the atonement. Uh, atonement as an example, atonement as a demonstration of God's love, the atonement as a demonstration of God's justice, as triumph over evil, and as a participation in it. But, but you know, when Jesus, the, the crux of the matter is when Jesus faced the prospect of a cross in Gethsemane, his plea was, not my will be done, but yours be done. No other way was possible. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And uh, just that wonderful sacrifice, because of who he is and was at that time, um, you know, Paul could say, you talk about the cross and its power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 4.2, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first of a Jew, then for the Gentile. And says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. We go on to his resurrection. Um, and, uh, you know, this is where Christianity is so different to any other religion in, in there's no other religion that has a doctrine anything like this that the founder uh, uh you know has a physical and literal resurrection from the death um and um jesus predicts his own in sort of breakout five there but jesus predicts his own resurrection um and there's so much testimony to it um and sin and death lose their power. I'm sorry, I'm going on really, really quickly to number six, because I do want to finish with this. <laughs> I don't want us to miss out on this point, because sometimes um, I mean, I've just been reading a book, um, which is, um, I don't know if you can see it. It's um, uh, the, the, the Spirit of Atonement, it's called, and um, it's by Stephen Studbaker. And it he's really making the view for a... Um, an understanding of atonement that goes beyond because classical traditional thinking is we talk about the cross and the power of the cross and even those of us who experience a charismatic and spirit-filled dimension to life we can sometimes think it stops there atonement stops there and i really want to encourage us to sort of stretch our thinking a bit as we finish this morning to stretch our thinking a bit and think it does not stop there it doesn't stop at the cross and Jesus, the, the pinnacle, the achievement of Jesus is not even the resurrection, but it's his enthronement and his pouring out only because John 7, 37, 39, you know, when it says about uh, come and, 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 and anyone is thirsty and up waters and um, given water of life and so on. It, 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 he was talking about the spirit which he hadn't yet given because he had not yet been glorified. So this human, because the spirit before was just in one person, in one place. Yes, of course, God's spirit is uh, omnipresent, but, but, but the specific personality of the spirit was, and power of the spirit was located in one person when Jesus was received the spirit and walking around on earth. It wasn't till he ascended, was glorified and sat down at the right hand of his father that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. I want to put to you that this is the greatest point. Uh, when we talk about Christology, it's the fact that Christ has risen, ascended and poured out the Holy Spirit. If we stop at the cross and the resurrection, we miss out so much on his Christ, on the presence of Christ 
in us today through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who brings to us, residing in us. You know, I'm not, <laughs> got to be careful, I am not diminishing what Jesus did in his um, humanity, walking 33 years on earth, limited in his human body, walking on earth. What a limitation. What the condescension of Christ is truly amazing. But I want to put it to you that the condescension of the person of God, the Holy Spirit, is even more amazing and something we join in on in that God, the Holy Spirit, is present living in human bodies like us, not just for, for you know, uh, 33 years on earth, but is, but is in us uh, because Christ ascended, was enthroned, and has poured out the Holy Spirit. Um, and so because of that, because of the enthronement of the King 6.1, sorry I'm rushing, but I'm no, you, you, I know Carol needs to move and I need to move this afternoon. But, but, but the kingdom of God is here. The enthronement of the king can't be separated from the establishment of the kingdom. If the king is in session, then the kingdom is here. And so if you like, the anointing oil of his coronation spilled over into the human realm at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit, in whose power Jesus had operated during his earthly ministry, fell upon his people. And so Christ has begun his reign in heaven uh, through those, us, who are in Christ, that would be the expression of that reign here on earth, pushing back the boundaries of his kingdom uh, through the message of the gospel. Romans 5.17, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Do you, do you understand that? The provision of grace, the Holy Spirit poured out, we reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. So in one sense, yes, the kingdom of God's always been in existence because God's eternal and by definition supreme. But in another sense, the kingdom of God was expressed and prophetically declared through ancient Israel, but it was through the person of Christ dead, risen, ascended, and enthroned, and pouring out the Holy Spirit that the long-awaited hope entered the most vital phase of its fulfillment. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem. What am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that when we talk about Christology, we can't talk about Christ without talking about the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Father sent Christ. Yes, He's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the person of Christ to us and empowers us to be his agent. Why? A mystery to us, but that God chooses to use us to be the ones who bring his kingdom rule and reign here on earth. Um, guys, I think it's fantastic. Um, sound Christology doesn't stop at the resurrection sound Christology goes on to the pouring out of God, the Holy Spirit, on people like you and us. I just say with Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16, you know, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, <laughs> died, rose again, ascended, was enthroned, Holy Spirit poured out. Um, uh, you know, we are such fortunate and blessed people. John 1 verse 18, no one has seen God, but God, the one and only, is at the Father's side, has made him known. You and I can be people who know God through the person of Christ.
the sun, the radiance of glory and the exact representation of his being, um, you know, the exact representation of his being. Just um, I'm going to speak in tongues if I carry on. So I'm going to stop now and uh, say thanks for listening, guys. It's coming up to 12 o'clock and I know you've got things to do. But if you just take away one thing from this second session, just think, don't limit Christ to this person, God, man, who came and lived and died and rose and ascended. Just give him the glory that is due to him by the fact that he's poured out the Holy Spirit. Christology, pneumatology is a technical term. It, it just comes into, we need a more of a pneumatological understanding of Christology is what I would say, and of redemption and all that Christ has done for us. Amen. Thank you, guys.